Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. You're listening to A Conversation with Stephen Barr. This is something where we get to dive into really the, the technology around cloud, around optimizing, around AI ethics, around human connection, around just everything. Stephen's such a fantastic, fantastic human, somebody who does really neat stuff both in the technology side as well as what he's doing around you know human connection and, and really driving the tech community and empowering people. So we, we get into a lot of very interesting things and very mindful, deep discussion around AI ethics. This is definitely one you're going to want to listen to as you think more about stuff like ChatGPT and, and all these things coming up. Uh, looking forward to going really really much further uh, in in future with steven so uh, make sure you do also connect with him on online all his links are below and go check out what he and the team at cloudfix are doing all right now before we get to that of course hey speaking of the the really interesting deep conversations have you had a deep conversation with your sales team about what they need in order to perform as we head into a really difficult economic time right we're in the midst of it but if you're not hiring now if you're not hiring the right people now then that means you're basically facing two years of pipeline drought. If you don't want that to happen, you're going to have to call the shift group. If you want to shift, you want to shift forward. What are JR and the team at shift group doing that is different? Well, what they are doing is they're taking elite athletes, elite performers, and turning them into elite sales professionals. JR and his team are taking proven techniques that he and his team have delivered in organizations and then taking elite performers and bringing them over, whether they're coming from retirement or they're making the jump from college sports or even just professional sports into technology professional fields. This is really cool. Whether it's everything from BDRs, SDRs, all the way up to account executives and everything in between. Not only are they giving you people, they're giving those people methods, playbooks, really proven ways in order to deliver. And on top of that, they help you to build your overall sales culture and help you to continue to hire the best people in future. So fantastic work. Go check it out. Go to shiftgroup.io and see all about what they're doing for you. Oh, and speaking of things that you should be mindful of, it's not just about the economic times being a little bit rough, but the digital times are a bit rough. Ransomware is going crazy. Everything's being put in risk. If you're in the risk business, and pro tip, we're all in the risk business. You want to be doing the best thing you can every day to make sure that you've got everything you need for your data protection needs. How do you do that? Go check out my fine friends at Veeam Software. Veeam are doing amazing stuff, everything from Kubernetes to cloud, cloud native, all the way down to physical servers, virtual servers, out to your email, Salesforce, all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, yeah, it's not crazy when you back it up because you've got to protect it. So go check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. You can find out all about what they've got. Again, everything you need for data protection needs. Wow, that was hard to say fast. And go check out. They've got Vmon coming up. Really cool event and lots of great stuff. So hope you enjoy that. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse and see what they got to offer. All right, let's get to the good stuff. This is Stephen Barr on the Discoposse podcast. Hello, my name is Stephen Barr. I am a principal cloud architect and technical evangelist with Aria CloudFix. 
So thanks for having me on, Eric. Thank you, Stephen. This has really been a lot of fun in the making because we've had a chance to do some stuff together in the fields. Uh, we worked together on some event stuff at AWS reInvent way back last year, which I tell you, it does feel like it was a long time ago. It, you know, in the sense of weeks compared to how many times it was since the last in-person event I was at, it was, uh, it's a lot shorter, but uh, yeah, I'm feeling the itch. I feel like uh, this in-person thing is kind of going to be neat to come back to. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. It was so inspiring seeing your, uh, your setup at reInvent and that kind of inspired uh, Raul and I to get some good, better gear and better camera, better microphones. And so really appreciate your, your guidance on that one. I think we finally got, finally are in a good place. And it was, I appreciate that discussion the other day on the, on the ATEM hardware. That was really neat. Yeah, this is, so this is the funny thing. I always say that even though we're like, so like, what do you do during the day? Right. When I always, and someone says, what exactly do you do here in sort of the office space sense? What's really more fun is that inevitably a lot of technologists uh, are creatives, right? It's a, it's an interesting thing that we tend to be professional extroverts, uh, but nature has deemed us to be introverts where we can just bridge the comfort level to be able to do stuff in public, but then we kind of got to dial it back. But what we generally find is they're almost always like musicians, photographers, love video gear, love art, like it, all sorts of very creative outlets. And it seems like a dichotomy sometimes you think like you should be like 100% like math brain nerd in order to do this. Like you do stuff with neural networks. You do. Anyways, we're, we're going to go into a lot of stuff. But before we get too far, for people that don't already know you fully, Stephen, let's give a quick background on you and uh, and what you and the team are doing at uh, at Aria CloudFix. Sure. Well, <laughs> the, that, the last sentence you were saying, it really got my brain going in terms of thinking, you know, you're right. We're creatives. We have our our day-to-day -day work, but then also the very thing that makes us good at our day-to-day -day work is also what distracts us from it. You get, <laughs> right? Okay, yes, I'm a tr I'm truly a nerdy person. I think, oh, wow, this gear is really interesting. Let's deep dive for a week, you know? And that's what makes, got me good at the cloud and at technology in general, but it can also be a distraction. So <laughs> circling back to you, the point that you, well, is what, what we're doing at CloudFix, so CloudFix is really neat, and I think it's extremely relevant right now when, when everyone's thinking about cost. The idea is that we can scan an AWS account or a set of AWS accounts and identify cost savings opportunities that are low or no impact. So some people, you, know, you can hire an expensive consulting firm and they can do some six or seven figure engagement, which says rewrite everything in this new architecture and, and we'll do it for you for, you know, 300 an hour or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one thing that might save you money in the very long run, but we're saying, uh, here's the low impact things that you can do right now. And, and, you know, the big rewrite could all, could be a good idea down the line, but right now you can do these things like, uh, optimize how you're doing your storage, how you're doing your, uh, your elastic blocks, your S3, your elastic block storage, how you get your VPC set up, lots of little things that can add up to a lot and that you could fix right now. That is the, I think always the catch when we get, you know, these sort of monstrous, it's just like, even like if I, if I look at my to-do list of everything that I've got to do, 
I will just stare at that list and and want to harm myself <laughs> because it's like it's and you end up doing nothing. You're sort of paralyzed by the the bigness of this this thing. And we get the same thing when we talk about you know well we should rewrite the app and people they're like isn't serverless just going to take over your app? Like well I appreciate the serverless can really lower the cost of certain functions within the application, but you're generally not going to write the entire application in a serverless framework. Or, you know, even if you choose to, that's not a, that's not an overnight task. I mean, this is, it's a big thing to get a run production, then refactor, rewrite, replatform, and then redeploy in parallel without losing data. Like, it's. It sounds like why don't you just rewrite it in Lambda? <laughs> like, and it's, it could be. And it could be that that is the answer in the medium run. But how do you, how do you keep your costs controlled right now? Right. Or do you exactly. do the best you can with your current architecture right now. And and they're both important. And I think, like you said earlier, touching on that uh, almost that nerd tendency. I think about um, Don Newth, the Stanford professor, and he he needed to write. The book, The Art of Computer Programming. He said, oh, there's no, there's no good typesetting system. I'll write LaTeX first, which is a complete, you know, a professional typesetting program. Yeah. And said, oh, I'll, just, I'll write this first before I can write my book. <laughs> you know, we always uh, think, you know, can I do the big theoretical master plan? Then everything else just kind of falls into place, and that's that's a good way of thinking. But sometimes it doesn't always. Sometimes the startup cost is too high. Yeah, there's a Douglas Adams, uh, of course, famous for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, and he did a great series for it was a BBC Nature or like National Geographic, whatever. And they they flew him around. It was called Last Chance to See, and he went to all these places to sort of see like the Komodo dragon, things that were effectively on the edge of the endangered list, and trying to add a bit of sort of humor to ex sharing that you know the experience of what they're going through being you know the last ones alive. And there was one thing he, there's this bird, and I forget what it was. It was sort of a descendant of the dodo bird that had this amazing pyramidal uh, nest that it creates where it has one egg inside it. And it per perfectly designs by nature this pyramidal thing that keeps the egg the precise temperature it needs to be for incubation. And so he sat there, he says, like any good nerd would, he sat there on his palm pilot working out how to actually figure out the formula by which this, you know, ancient bird creates this perfect pyramidal thing to keep the precise temperature. And he's like, so if I ever needed to calculate the volume of this particular bird's nest again in future, I could do it in a second because I wrote an algorithm for it. <laughs> he's like, but it's literally the last one alive. So I don't think I'm going to need this again. But that's just how boys work. <laughs> just, just in case this, uh, you, know, you gotta, and that's, that's that risk, right? You always want to come up with the absolute general solution to everything. But then you have to balance that with pragmatism. And I'm glad you mentioned Douglas Adams. I just ordered the, the box set some of his work to uh to read to my older kids oh, i think that nice. the older ones are nine and ten so they're just on the i think where they can appreciate some of the humor yeah the the interesting thing i think is a uh, we have this difficult human tendency to like understand the goal which is like we need to achieve this sort of large-scale thing we we set you know we we talk about the BHAG, right the big hairy audacious goal and we kind of latch onto that and we've been taught that that's the way to do things that's the only way you change it's the only way you go from zero to one and you get the only way that you can make you know non-incremental change 
But then at the same time, you're like, well, the path to there is likely incremental change. Like you don't even have to be a student of Goldrat to understand that it is simply about locating the closest constraint and then attacking that constraint. Like what's the highest impact thing you can do without as far as result, but the lowest impact to the production of whatever the flow is, whether it's materials, whether it's, you know, medical, whether it's code, like how do you just slice it down to like, here's the thing I can do and it will have a measurable effect on towards this outcome, towards that goal. But humans, we get stuck on like, no, 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 we, you're, you're getting stuck in the minutia. You know, it's not about the speeds and feeds. And we hear this all the time. You're like, I know that like to sell a product to a CIO, we can't talk about speeds and feeds, but the people that are going to use this stuff, yeah, they deal in speeds and feeds like daily. <laughs> it was interesting what you're saying. And I think that we latch on to some of those stories because they are, um, they're, they're the exceptions, but then we forget, okay, these are the exceptions and most progress is a lot more uh, incremental. Uh, actually, one of my sisters, is, she's an aerospace engineer and I saw this announcement, and I'm not in that field at all. And so I saw this announcement uh, by the CEO of, he was Emirates and he said, okay, if Airbus could get an extra you know, 9% efficiency, they'd do this enormous order. And then my sister just laughed and said, you know that like the idea that there'd be 9% on the table is absurd. Yeah, every airliner would throw away their entire fleet and re redo it for 9%. <laughs> yes. um, I didn't appreciate that. Yeah, okay, this is this is a very <laughs> mature field. They're pushing towards 2 and 3% gains would be great. And that yeah. it adds up at scale. But they're, they're not talking about, oh, yeah, well, let's grab an extra 10% from redesigning this jet, jet engine. And that's, you think about like material engineering that's one thing where you can almost say there are like material changes that are occurring because of new developments that could have a fairly profound effect. But again, like you said, profound effect would be 3%. That would be like to get to 4% would be like, hold on a second. This is like some going to Mars level technology we just discovered, like to get that much of a gain, it would feel like. But then we move over into code. We move over into like ops tooling, and there's a very human aspect to it. And this is part of the challenge of why creatives are so important to knowing the technology, but also knowing how it's consumed and used. And I think this is where you fit so fantastically, Stephen, is that you have such an acute awareness of how humans want it to go, how they will act trying to get it there, and then understanding the bits underneath it and being able to help guide that path. So, you know, let's, I'd love to just start with the classic thing because you and I, I think are the last ones left that still use the word evangelist because now it's all DevRel and, you know, advocacy, whatever the, so kudos on you for, uh, for being a, an evangelist still with me. We're, we're holding on to the title. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, what I like about it is that, I mean, just like it's, um, I suppose, metaphysical counterpart, there, there are, objectives that are short-term and long-term and, and hard to define. And it isn't just uh, you know, KPIs for next quarter. It, it is really about something bigger, about growing mind share and, and getting people on the same page. And I think it's an, it's an apt term. So yeah, let's keep it going. Yeah. And it's, it was interesting that I, I actually had somebody 
on I was doing a, a webinar. It was a pretty fairly broad audience, and it was very interesting. It's the only time I've ever had this happen where somebody was vocal enough <laughs> that they said, I wouldn't do anything with a company who has somebody that would call themselves an evangelist. And I was like, oh, wow, that's very interesting. So somebody actually did like take almost offense in the fact that I was using the, we were using the term and I, you know, whether it was a, you know, had, had a strong connotation to this person. And it was, it was a very interesting that that happened. And he was, you know, vocal enough to say to type this into the chat. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And actually ended up connecting after the fact. And he said, yeah, it was it. He says, I, I attach a very strong religious connotation. And I, and I, I do not like that to cross over into things that get sold. And I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it, it warrants a discussion, right? You didn't, anyone who, actually, I was listening to this, well, to your last episode, actually, where they said someone who takes the time to give you a negative comment is, it's still useful to think about. And it's not negative in the sense of, you know, it's not a personal thing. It's it's a semantic and title thing. And it, I mean, even if you keep using that word, it, it at least adds some texture to it and some, some nuance and thinking, okay, well, what is the part of evangelism that we are taking? And then obviously we're not trying to convert anyone to a religion, but we are trying to get mind share. And, um, you know, you can, you can start to make some analogies of some terms. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's an, it's, it's a worthwhile discussion, no, no matter where you fall on that side of the discussion. Yeah. I, and I do love, that this is again something that you do particularly well is the is the freedom to explore sometimes challenging discussions right and it's especially in technology we are we have a lot of you know i don't want to say religious but we have a lot of strong opinions towards a particular thing and sometimes you need to have that like opinionated frameworks opinionated tooling opinionated methods uh and with that comes sort of a this sort of fervent drive that this is the right way to do things and it's difficult sometimes to step back from that and say like oh well is is what we're doing you know it's it's right for now but is it the right thing in the in the larger picture in in the broad term and not even that you're trying to steer people away from something but you want them to slow down and reevaluate why they got to here and well, it's, an it's a funny part it's a funny part of human nature, isn't it? That we, we feel like we've got something that we've got a good idea. Yeah. We generally do want to spread it. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'm thinking about even to my younger days, right? When I think about, um, okay, like if I, I, I'm on the Emacs side of things, so obviously I have to not like Vim. Yes, right. You're, you're required by nature to hate every other editor. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, zooming out, why do I care? If it, if it helps people get things done. I per I personally like it, but then also I can see the, um, as I get older, I see its warts and I see myself using it um, less, even though I still have a, maybe a romanticized version of it in my head of living inside this uh, Lisp machine that perfectly captures all of my uh, thoughts and intentions and translates it into, you know, perfectly running code in the back end. But that, that, well, is that what Emacs is or is that what I want it to be? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And it becomes, it is almost like the music you listened to when you were 17 that you can listen to now and it brings you back to that moment. And I think that those early experiences really do shape 
a lot of what we do. They sort of it colors and and sort of puts a font on future things. And and it's good that you know I think there's and the gap from like seventeen to thirty is the like I'm running with this one. I'm sticking with this. And then after that, you're like, oh okay, what made me do that thing? <laughs> yeah, and, and it even could be something. Well, it it could be something so simple, right? Like. I had a social motivation, you know, trying to impress someone. It's really around 17 in your early 20s that that probably right. drives a lot of decisions. Yeah. So when it comes to the experience of being the proxy between code and people, and I really think that's kind of where a, a very few people successfully sit. No, well, not even sit, but they act. There's a big difference, right? A lot of people can, can sit there and they're sort of doing it for their own purpose, but you you genuinely, and a very few other people that I could call out, really are like giving it away so that everybody can get better. And it's it really is that that title of evangelist goes so so nicely in that. But just the true you're so deep on the tech, but yet we really know like you as a person are the one that's doing it and the companies that you work with sort of come along for the ride and obviously there's a massive association that goes with it but it, the cool thing is that you've created your niche in such a fantastic way and then now you can you know because hey who knows in 10 years like let's just be let's be real like we're we're all going to change email addresses over time you know and sometimes hey you know this company may have an acquisition they move you to a different part of the org you're working with a different team, but it's still going to be you that's doing it. So what what drew you, Stephen, to... Oh, one second. One nope. second, guys. Sorry. <laughs> that's all good. That This is the fun part about working from, uh, working from wherever we are, that uh, life continues to go on. <laughs> I remember somebody asked me that, hey, are we going to edit? Like someone had like their dog was barking and they went to go to the door to get a courier thing. And they're like, okay, we're going to edit that out. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> it's fine. I just kept talking while you were there. <laughs> that That's great. Oh, okay. Thanks for saying that. That's, I really appreciate that. Um, well, I think one thing I, I've learned is to, you know, as the job functions change, it's easy to get abstracted away from what you're actually, what's actually happening in, in tech. And so I do really enjoy um, getting into it, right? Like I don't, I don't necessarily write code that goes to production anymore, but I still could. Um, and I, I really just, I think that's something I learned from my dad is just like to always maintain that ability to, to dive deep. Um, and that got confirmed to me. I, I used to be a consultant and I was on one particular project I'm thinking of that I'm not going to name. Um, but Every everyone in that company wanted to be a manager and to take pride in their distance from the actual database. And at that time, I was consulting as a data scientist, and so I thought, okay, how does this field actually work? I need to understand because these predictions aren't making sense. Oh, talk to this person; he's who's way well below me. Uh, talk to this person who actually understands. And that when you actually got to who understood how the data worked, it was a tiny fraction of people in this company. And then all these other people had built up these like circular wrong 
assumptions and abstractions over what the data actually was. And so trying to do data science on this ended up being a big mess because it was all circular and self-referential and no one wanted to understand it. Yeah. So uh, taking that as it's always cautionary tale in my mind to like, to not, um, to not do that. And I think the comp where I am right now, Aria, it's incredible to see the technical depth uh, from top to bottom. And I am really proud of, proud of them seeing the internal chats, like an AWS announcement comes out and everyone from you know, the top on down can, chimes in on the implications of this. It's not, it's, it's far more technical across the entire org than, than I've ever seen. And it's really neat to be a part of that. And I really like, and in talking with you and Rahul when we were in Vegas for, for reInvents, it was neat because I did, I mean, I, and I sort of naturally like are drawn like a fly to, uh, you know, a, a light uh, when I see people who are, understands this, the big picture sort of broad industry stuff, but also the, the smaller bits that will matter. Like it is very interesting. It becomes that tiny detail. Like when I look at a handmade bicycle versus a, you know, a factory made bicycle, like it's the weld. It's the smallest little thing that people are like, look at this thing. And it's like so neat to the cyclist in me, to sort of the manufacturer in me. And it's probably so unexciting to so many people. <laughs> but I, you, when you can surround yourself by people who can, again, sort of bridge that gap of understanding what the bigger outcome is, but really appreciate the tiny things that make that happen. It's such a fantastic thing to surround yourself with. Well, I'm thinking of one of my, my closest friends. I think he has the same passion for these. In particular, he really likes 1980s Japanese bicycles and he can show nice. all the different components and he loves these things. And, and it's great to not only be able to have these people, but also to like, to appreciate, like I asked him, Hey, can you find me a used bike? I, you've invested a thousand hours of your life into understanding this. Can you, can you find me one? Um, and being able to, you know, this it's a really neat thing and to be able to dive deep into something and to understand it and to see the, because otherwise I would have, you know, gone through the progression of, okay, I'll buy a, a cheap new one. And then at some point it would have broken. And then I would have <laughs> learned the hard way. Okay. This is why these, there's still a following of these 30 year old bicycles <laughs> that are, are better value at my price point. I think that's actually probably one of the, the a great phrase to describe what we can do for technologists, right? Is can we, can we do a thing so that we can save them having to learn the hard way? Well, and I guess that's where it comes into to credibility, right? Because that's where you'd say, you want to say, trust me, I've done this. But then if you say, trust me, I've done this is the wrong way. And I'm you know financially aligned with this other way of doing it better. You know, then it, you can set up, well, is that really, have you really, and so that's where I, it's really important to maintain credibility to say, okay, yes, I have done it this way. I understand exactly what you're doing. I understand the incentives behind it. Um, this is the experiences we've had, how it sometimes plays out. I think that's, that's a good conversation to have and to be able to have. And I think that really is like the integrity of doing it in practice or at least sort of having skin in the game to the outcome. And that's why, you know, 
good on. There's like fantastic consulting firms out there, and there are many that are you know, that we make sort of parody commercials about. I remember there was one. It was you know, these two people that are sitting at a table with you know with a business person, and and they're like, so we're gonna do is we're gonna you know, move your supply chain, make it faster. And they're going to relocate this and do this and whatever. And they're doing all these things. And the, and the fellow goes, yeah, that's perfect. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. And then the two consultants look at each other and go, oh, oh, no, no, we don't actually do the things we say to do. We just say them. And it was, like, I think it was an ad for other UPS or FedEx or something like that. The idea wow. that, hey, we aren't just like going to come in here and tell you you need to do a thing and charge you a bunch of money. And it was like, oh boy, it was sadly true <laughs> about so many, you know, quite often these consulting firms get a bad rap because they end up in that situation where they're like, they give you these big, bold things to charge you a bunch of money, but then there's no execution of that activity. Yeah, yeah, that, that's... And you, it's understandable. I mean, it's it's difficult. I mean, that's why they get paid so well. It's because it's difficult to kind of jump into an environment, understand. Because often there's not this technical things, but there's there's silos both in data and in terms of influence. And there's a whole political system that you're jumping into the middle of when you're a consulting engagement. And I've been there. I've been the consultant. Like, Wait, I'm just in this room to win an argument between two people. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't. Yeah. This isn't really about what's technically best. What and so that again, it goes to this idea that technology is a very human thing, you know, and it's the the greatest technology may not be the greatest human experience, and thus it won't actually be valuable. Like if the if technology can be, if I can save you a little bit, like there's a reason. I mean, I don't want to call out specific you know tools, but I'm going to, <laughs> you know, you got Apple Maps versus GPS, uh, you know, Google Maps versus Waze. And I was sort of described it as like Apple Maps is we're going to take an artisanal drive up the coast towards the, your destination, you know, and it's like I, it would literally show me it would be like one hour and 20 minutes. And then you do it in Google Maps and it's like 54 minutes. You know, we're going to we're going to cut through the city and, and uh, take a take a non toll road to, to get around a problem. And then Waze is like, yeah, we're going to drive through this person's backyard. Hold on. (laughs) In order to shave seconds off. But what I do is I wish there was a thing like, you know, there's the avoid tolls. Love it. Like avoid tolls button, you know, at the slider inside a GPS tool. What there should be is avoid left turns where there's no light. Like that's the thing that I want to avoid. Because for me, if I... If I could save 35 seconds, according to the GPS, but I have to turn left across four lanes of traffic, I'm less likely to be successful at recapturing those few minutes. And I'm going to be stressed out doing it. I think you brought up a really interesting part about the interaction of technology and humans is that often uh, what gets lost is preference, the preferences and the underlying assumptions that are made in the background that lead to the decisions these tools make, right? So in the mapping example, you said, right, that, that Waze is, is in implying that you want absolute shortest time A to B, forget about destruction of property or whatnot, right, exactly. <laughs> impossible turns. Um, I remember I was doing a consultant, a data science project for some doctors, and it was about optimal 
drug dosing of a a particular like a blood pressure medication and that was a a really hard thing to extract from them as we were trying to get this model right is to say okay machine learning models they're going to make mistakes sometimes they will over predict sometimes they will under predict so which which is worse in this situation um and i said oh no you can't do it you can never ever give too much and i said well the only way to be sure of that is this model can say never prescribe anything to anybody ever because i can't know that the entire universe of people there's one person who's uh, deathly allergic to even a milligram of this particular drug right so that's my only way i can assure no, no no we can't do that okay so then how bad is overdosing on this particular drug oh no you can't do that either and so really trying to say give me a, a way to quantify the trade-off between too much and too little so then i can give some advice and also give some some risk preferences around it uh and give some you know, try and and obviously this this model was never going to be hooked up to some i don't know iv drip directly that's way too risky right yeah <laughs> but it can help to guide the decision right yeah. yeah exactly because literally but it was hard to really pin down what the doctor's preferences were in this one situation and often when we have these discussions about okay well what are your preferences for risk and, and often and i think that's a, having worked with a lot of doctors in the data science context i tell people now like make sure you tell them what your personal preferences are in terms of trade-off of um, like how much are you willing to do for a particular thing? Like often doctors will say um, prescribe medication under the assumption that you're not willing to change any lifestyle things. And you say, well, I'm willing to change lifestyle. I'm willing to work out every day and do this. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, try that first. Right. But maybe they're making an assumption right or wrong that you're willing to do nothing other than uh, have a prescription. And yeah, so it's kind of a weird way of saying, but, Getting people's preferences for risk, for uh, in, in in a text, it's more about speed and cost and variation. Uh, getting those things out into the open so that they can then be we can make informed decisions. I think is really important, and that's that's one of the things that's tricky. Yeah. So what's neat is when you can start to do stuff at a broad scale, and that's where I think we're getting more opportunity now with you know just even just straight machine learning. We don't, don't need necessarily go to the point where the, we need it to sort of think for itself, but can it, you know, be trained on a, on a large data set so that we can look and discover patterns that are occurring? I'm a, as a human, I've always been a fan of like finding patterns in, in behaviors. Uh, so I've always sought out just i've been a people watcher and you kind of sometimes you like when the when the world burns a little bit in weird ways like you see like when when negative situations occur you see actual sort of lizard brain behavior begin to happen and that was in effect what kahneman and traversky did was they said hey according to the math this is the best you know probabilistic outcome but when we put people in the middle of this decision it actually went a different way. And so I've always loved this idea that can we use it to discover a pattern and then maybe find out that yeah, the computer won't be able to make the decision because we need to influence it. We need to, you know, put a human decision point in. But that's that in itself is a beautiful automation. Can we just get to the next decision and maybe it's human? So be it. It's, it's not wrong. It's it's uh, I kind of think I'm good with making that small change to get a little further. And then, you know, that's my outcome. 
or can, or can we get this decision in front of a human who then, and with all the trade-offs that they need in order to make the right decision? Um, to kind of, uh, and I'll, I want to take two different asides with the, with what you just said. Uh, so the first one, the more direct one. So one of the things we recommend is switching from, uh, in terms of elastic block storage, GP2 to GP3. That's a straight win. That's that's yeah. better in every sense. GP2 or GP3, sorry, IO2 to GP3. Well, like that depends. Uh, how much do you value durability? Um, and then but being able to put that trade off in front of someone and says, okay, GP3 can do everything for you except match the durability numbers in your particular use case. Do you want that? And that's where I think we can add a lot of value because when you look at these pricing things, you see like a hundred different, you see a lot of different variables, not a hundred, but a handful of different variables. How do they all interact and which ones are the important ones in my use case and being able to distill that down and say, okay, here's, here's the situation. Do you want to make this change? Do you value durability? And then we'd flag that as a, a medium change where you'd want to, Right. think about it first you wouldn't just want to automatically do it but then if you had a g an io2 volume that you could say hey look in the last month it's never ever been asked to perform in a way that gp3 couldn't handle do you want to make this switch or do you really want to be able to pay for the uh this durability and performance even though you haven't used it in the last month two months three months and you're paying you know 5x more or whatever it is so that's one. The second one I really like bringing up that reptile brain. And, you know, I've got four kids and, and my wife and I use that all the time in terms of saying, you know, because kids, they can react in with their reptile brain. And sometimes they say, okay, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you tired? You know, get those, get those needs met and let's think through this rationally. And my wife has her doctorate in neuroscience. She really likes them diving deep into the kids and helping them introspect their own thinking and behavior. And I wish I had that when I was little of understanding you know what's what's driving my own motivations and and how much of it is is uh reactive and primal versus uh logical yeah wait and it's it, i often laugh when when people say like you're doing something you know irrational and but I'll, quite often the people think irrational means that you're purposefully doing a behavior that's going against something like to create a negative outcome you're like but no no, no in it's in its core sense irrational is reptile brain activity it's something that you actually can't control it's a it's an innate behavior rational is you trying to add some spin to it you are humanizing a thing you are rationalizing you know sort of trying to create a thing that was ira wasn't irrational it's so funny that people get those words backwards for to me <laughs> or it could be i guess i could say uh reptile brain is in a sense rational under a very strange set of assumptions that probably don't hold up so for example uh i really enjoy doing these uh uh cold plunges i really enjoy doing that but there's always that second right when i've jumped this is so dumb <laughs> This is this so is a terrible idea. I was warm, and in a second, I'm going to be freezing. And my rational brain says, "Okay, I, I'm going to. Be, this is a controlled environment. I can fix this. I see the data. Uh, you know, we got Andrew Huberman talking about how great cold plungers are. That my rational brain is saying, "Okay, this is a good idea." But then there's my reptile brain that says, "This is dumb. Get out. Get out. Get out." <laughs> and I have to. Um, and they're both rational in a sense. Yeah. But 
Um, I have to t- talk about a I fantastic guess- reference. I think if I could be, you know, there's a lot of people that I look at that are great at really diving into something and then coming out with sort of the 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 thing that we can actually do and Huberman does such a fantastic job he goes so deep into the study of it and in the end kind of comes out with a one-liner of yeah it's it's been shown that using cold plunges on a daily basis will increase your you know uh neurological activity in a positive way and then he goes into like an hour and a half of how they figured out that that was the case (laughs) i want to be huberman for technologists like that would be that'd be a that would be a life goal uh, (laughs) if i could be that good well and i love how he's got these youtube shorts where like in less than 60 seconds you can explain like you said this really neat concept what are the trade-offs what are the benefits how do you break it down into you know here's five steps you can take to that you can do right now right I mean, I was thinking about this morning, uh, get a little bit of exposure to sunlight, right? That's another one that he recommends. Start your morning with a little bit of exposure to sunlight, even if it's just standing in your driveway for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the thing that, again, I think as, as technologists, we often get so stuck on like the, the, the hugeness of everything that's going on that we don't get a chance to pause and do those things. And and quite often it's just literally just getting up and walking around, you know, it used to be walking around the office. I would like, okay, I'm stuck. I've been trying this code back and forth, back and forth, you know, trying some ops tooling, trying something. I'm like, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go downstairs I'm going to walk around the building and come back up. And you're like, as you're on the way up the elevator, you're like, Oh God, I got, it, I got, it, I got it. You're like typing it in your phone. Like I know what to do. <laughs> Writing it down to make sure it doesn't, uh, fall out of your head yeah it's uh it's difficult for us to not find those like niche details and that's why like said the 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 way that your team and like the platform approaches i love it that number one we can kind of look at general best practices and then we take those best practices merge them with actual like real dollar outcomes that we could gain by taking an action and then on top of that being able to then infuse it and i sort of use that very purposefully infuse it with your preferences and you know both co- uh, company and human team choices where you're like hey we kind of don't want to move everything to flash for this particular set of applications you're like okay it'd be better for you but we're cool with it like human infused you know machine learning is is so good especially in this where then you can look at that that new application that comes up and now you could effectively say, hey, is it going to be more like this type of app or this type of app? And we can then do kind of what Ray Dalio does with Bridgewater. It's like eventually the machine will make the decision, check with the human. What do you think? A or B? And you're like, oh, totally A. All right, cool. We'll take it from here. Oh, I love I love that uh, that reference as well. And yeah, having that human in the loop to say, okay, you know the context. Um uh, but then here's all here's all your options and here's the uh the risk here's the reward and then let our our very well trained uh neural networks figure that out that's right and it can be a very specific non learnable thing like i'll go back to an old example you know oldish 
right? V motions for VMware were this this landmark thing. People say like you you remember where you were when you know when you saw your first V motion as if it was like when Kennedy was shot. Like we literally have like like people have this thing like I remember I was sitting at my desk and I we moved this production machine and it didn't go down. You're like this is amazing, and it was this this huge foundational thing. But then what we ended up having was you'd have some application that according to every thing that was in the instructions should be fine, right? And I took this application and I I've storage vMotioned it. So I'm gonna move just not the compute, but the storage as well. But it was a huge database server. So it's gonna take like 15 minutes to transfer the storage, but no problem, because we've got storage vMotion and vMotion. So it's gonna be up the whole time. Au contraire, mon, mon ami. <laughs> that sucker is going to go down the second you start that storage fee motion because it stuns the database and the app can't restart. And you have to reboot the server now, but you can't because it's in the middle of a storage fee motion. So <laughs> we're sitting there staring at this thing going 1%, 2%, and help desk is lighting up like crazy, and you're like, I'm stuck. So According to all the data, all the perfect science, we should have been fine moving this app. But in, in you know, as they say, in theory, everything works in practice, but in practice, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, so here we are. I know I should tag that workload as like, no, 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 not during business hours <laughs> or not during batch processing. Yeah. Well, have you, there's a great anecdote called the 500 mile email. Have you read this? No, no. Now, uh, now I'm going to write this one down. This is cool. Yeah, I think that the summary is there was this change in a configuration file for a mail sending daemon. I think it was an old version of send mail um, about timeouts. And this team had, had found that sending emails to people further away than 500 miles failed. And it came back to a default value in a configuration file when the when the number was moved from you know, version seven to version eight, caused a basically a, an instantaneous timeout. And so only things that were geographically close by and had very little lag time were able to make it. And that turned out to be about five hundred miles. And further than that, there's the network hops were too too much for the timeout. Right. It's one of these little strange little things that comes up that. Uh, it's good to remember that we do have very tall technology stacks and we still, we, I think we, that, we understand them less than we ever do like from the top down. Well, yeah. And, and every once in a while you get that thing and people are like, oh yeah, we can totally have synchronous, you know, we have synchronous replication between these two things. And like, sir, what's the distance? And like, like I get, we got some pretty fantastic, you know, tooling that we've advancements we've done, but yeah, there's just raw physics involved there. Like you literally, there's light cannot travel to the point where it can be sub eight milliseconds across this physical barrier. There's no amount of acceleration, no amount of, you know, of increasing signal along the way. It is light. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, a long time ago, I was investigating these you know, sensors, um, looking at like sensors for properties in rural Australia and trying to figure out how to get these camera feeds, uh, you know, in these big farms and trying to understand how that worked. And you look at these these like spy shows where they're showing this this army team breaking into you know some cave in the middle of nowhere and they've got this 4K video feed 
and yet they're they're like you know underground in some bunker like that's yeah. not gonna happen you, you're not unless there's some it's hard to understand the laws of physics that would let that happen it's like the old the meme of like enhance enhance you know and like you see the picture zoom in and it's like you can see the 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 date printed on a dime that someone's holding in their hand from a satellite you know like mm, no 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 Frank can't do that <laughs> yeah it's neat to remember that there's yeah we're in a physical in the end of the day it's still all physical and yeah. you have to think about what are the actual physical constraints of the system which is it's fun. that's I think that's why people get into um, well my friend uh, Darko Mazarosh he really loves this vintage tech and he was showing me his his vintage tech collection the other day and I do um, I th I really enjoy the the physicality of all that and remembering you know the just the, the smells and the tactileness of the buttons and the, the sounds of dot matrix printers and all that stuff yeah. Yeah, the, it, and it's sort of the like why the resurgence in like old school mechanical keyboards, and it seems to be like the louder the better. And it's <laughs> it's hilarious that I remember having my dad literally like when they come up I, exactly. You know, I came, I was working on an essay at the last minute because it was due the next day. So I'm like literally freeform typing this like 15 page essay at one o'clock in the morning, and of course my family's trying to sleep and all they hear is and finally he just comes in he's like stop 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 <laughs> and so then for the next two hours i'm going tech 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 <laughs> trying to like i'm still trying to type but i gotta like so now we like crave that thing but it does bring you back and there is something sort of fantastic about the the feeling it creates, and I think that's what makes technology, whether it's that true sort of manual, like, but that moment where you're like, come take a look, check this out, check this out. Like you, like you would stand around the desk and people are like, watch this, watch this, look at this. And this, this feeling that it gives you and like as a group, you're like, I made this thing do a thing and then now where we are observing we're like i trained this thing and look what it did by itself and you're like ah oh. but i still get that feeling i still get the like when i send something and i do like a natural you know language uh you know analysis of something and just to watch it come back and i'm like watch this i'm gonna do it again and it's gonna be it's gonna come back a little different <laughs> and like well, and I'm, a, I'm a wow and i love that it does that <laughs> Well, I was thinking of that the, the example that you just gave, and I think now, I mean, like, what was your reaction the first time you used a Chat GPT or something like that? Oh, so uh, funny thing, I've got a, uh, I've got a bit of a, I'll say, a campaign coming. You know, given that people ask me now a lot, they're like, "Hey, isn't Chat GPT kind of going to replace something?" So the irony is that I actually asked Chat GPT to tell me if it can replace me. <laughs> and it gave me this beautiful eight point answer why it can't. And I was like, thank you, chat GPT. <laughs> and like the, the fact that it could have enough self-awareness and I love throwing, you know, questions that are like twist questions at it, making it better, which is the hilarious thing. That's why I always laugh when people are like, hey, you know, what's your, you know, they, they do these face analysis things. They're like, oh, this is so crazy. I'm like, do you understand how much you're training this thing? 
because all these people are taking all these selfies. I'm like, this is the most magnificent viral campaign for data import I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, we're all in part of this uh, validation machine, this big reinforcement learning loop. That's right. And so if someone told you, hey, Stephen, you know what I need you to do? I need you to hack away at your keyboard, like probably about three hours this week to train something for free. And you're like, are you crazy? I would never do that. But meanwhile, they're like, hey, you know, chat GPT, it's like pretty wild. You should check it out. Well, you actually are now about to do spend three hours training this thing. <laughs> and not just that, um, I was playing well, with my older kids that we we had chat GPT generate this silly story. And it was about uh, a, it was about a kid who met a chicken, but the chicken was actually a robot and the robot laid batteries instead of eggs. And like, it generated this really funny story that like you could put into a children's book and then we went over into dolly 2 and said illustrate a friendship between a boy and a robot chicken in the style yeah. of a children's book and it comes out wow that's that's kind of cool yeah this is there, a lot of fun i think this is where we're gonna see i think we're gonna see a lot of legal wrangling in the next while because this is a one of the problems we bumped into with with copilot uh the github project and a few others that are using that even just like you know copywriting stuff the idea that none of these tools are generating new things like they they can they can infer some newness from patterns that have been learned across multiple things so they can combine the things the idea is they're basically like you can't say you patented sans but you know, etch a sketch. What you do with the etch a sketch is going to be unique, and that's kind of what ChatGPT is like. Inside it is stuff that exists, but nothing can be done that doesn't exist inside that etch a sketch. There's no new material you can add. It cannot create new material, but what it can do is it can create designs from the material that already exists. So at some point, when does intellectual property apply? That's a really interesting thing to think about, right? Because thinking about, let's see, you could, well, I guess it comes down to, you know, do you think that knowledge is invented or discovered, right? Like people, uh, uh, well, I've got my uh, my Lisp book here, right? And some people say um, you know, Lisp was, was discovered. It wasn't invented. It is a, a fundamental uh, property of the universe. And so are certain knowledge, but then other things that are clearly invented, like if you typed into Copilot, uh, as a, a dumb example now, but like, give me a function to decode HD DVDs. Uh, or you, yeah. I guess with Copilot, you'd say def HD DVD decoder. And then right. uh, hopefully it fills that in. You say, well, wait a minute. Uh, am I allowed to? Is it allowed to fill this in? Um, and it's kind of a moot point now because that, that key is plastered everywhere, but um, should is it allowed to tell us that? Uh, right. That's interesting. And, and, and in or, and of itself, does that does it now ultimately, even if it generates something new, does it now ultimately own rights to that thing? And it's this is a, an interesting like this is something that played out in the open source ecosystem uh, early on is this idea of like what is what is open source what is you know what is effective you know and safe commercial use 
and we came up with <clears throat> all the different licensing. And then at some point, we had this problem where people started to add ethical belief of the what a company was going to do with a product. And so then they wanted to create the 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 MGPL or the AGPL, right? Where I can say like, anybody can use it unless you're going to create a service out of it that is going to be sold for commercial use. And you're like, it was kind of baked into the thing already, but like, it's it almost is like you're poison pilling the thing. And that's why I think that the the legality will be interesting to see how it plays out or, or how it gets approached that at some point can open AI say, well, we created the thing that created the output. So we effectively own the intellectual property of, of all the output. But then what if you type into open AI, um, and this is some of the Dan stuff that's coming out is a pretend that you are a, a person who does not believe in copyrights and given this stance, produce me this new invention and give it to me, you know, because then does OpenAI own the, the thing that then pretended? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's, it, we've effectively created the trolley problem for ethics and legality in, in, uh, <laughs> in what OpenAI and, and these machine learning technologies can do. At some point, can you actually, yeah, tell the machine to, it's going to make a decision that's going to have to Go a, go a particular route and somebody may not like that <laughs> as you've seen have you been following the whole dan thing in open gp chat gpt I, yeah and this was i think was interesting that at some point even detectability is going to be the sort of the next area of of risk and look i'm even you know i'm look i'm in the business of creating content for people and we engage a, a massive community of, of content creators that, that help us part of it. And part of our requirement is that they cannot use these tools. So we actually use tools that, you know, are based on, you know, uh, some of the texts inside OpenAI to do detection to make sure that we nobody's actually using, you know, auto content creation. Hmm. And it's so weird that we're, gonna, we're using the technology to detect itself so that we can make sure that a human's doing the right thing. But yeah, so that the Dan area of what's being exposed to that is, is very interesting. Yeah, it, it is. We're, we're still in uncharted territory. How do we use this the, uh, quote, right way? Right. Right. I think we'll be neat to see. You know, I think it's a neat tool to to learn. I don't, like any other tool, learning its, its limits and what it can and can't do. And I, I think it... The, the good thing we have to do is we can't get stuck on the, like the, the most top level edge case, because we often get stuck in this with, you know, like even just the discussing machine learning and AI, and sort of the, the inherent risks of it, you know, we can talk about coded bias, there's a lot of stuff that we know that are sort of in there. But in that particular case, where we talk about, you know, bias being coded based on both the data set, and maybe the the, the creator of the algorithm may not understand outside of a sphere of direct awareness. So they may code something specifically to their own knowledge or their own experience and, and by its nature could be biased uh, or anti-biased, whatever. But the problem we've got there is that if we say, well, we then we shouldn't do it, 
You're like, no, 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 you understand with machine learning, we have to train it. The only way we can get away from bias is to train it with data that's outside of the bias. And so in fact, I think we need more of work in areas that are purposefully in kind of edgy, difficult spaces of, of, you know, maybe not ethics and legality necessarily, but like some, we have to get to some uncomfortable discoveries so that we know how to get past them. Oh, sure. We have to uh, is it explore it and understand. And one thing I do hope that the popularity of this, of these type of tools does um, it, it should teach us all to think about um, we'll learn more about probability and to think about distributions. And I think we all have kind of like a gut feeling of that, but to actually be able to think about it more explicitly, um, like for example, and I use I used to help with the um, University of Washington's uh, MBA statistics course. So it was really fun. Like I have a lot of statistical anecdotes from that time, but like you know, if you're here on the weather, it's going to be 70 degrees, right? You don't think it's going to be exactly 70, and you're going to call in at 70 and a half, right? You know that there's some normal distribution centered around 70 degrees, and the the bell curve uh, is going to be you know plus or minus say 10 or 11. Right. It's probably not going to be 100, probably not going to freeze. Um, but then think, OK, these uh, these models also are turning a forecast with a distribution around it. But, you know, the, there's some uncertainty and being able to kind of bring more of the probabilistic discussion into the mainframe, main yeah. conversation, I think will be useful. Yeah. And I think that's because it also introduced the idea that, number one, you can you can measure and generate uh, a perceived outcome based on training data that's led you to this point. If you just pure as pure AI, like data in, data out, raw algorithm, it's effectively, you know, it, it's, it's going to create the same data goes in, the same data will come out. There's no way to change it. But then with machine learning to go one step further where you can effectively acquire, you know, a font on top of it. And that's sort of like the training of the human aspect of can we say, I was talking about the consciousness font. I think that's what we are. Like we have this core consciousness. The font is the external face of that thing. So the data is living inside us. The way that we express it is the, is the font. That is the, the opinion that gets added and the preferences. And that's where we can come in. We could say like, hey, I could save you, a, I could save you a boatload of money, drop everything down to this. And they're like, I get you, but I kind of prefer that we don't for this subset of things. And you're like, all right, cool. And the, so that in future, we could say that same product could go, while you recently said we shouldn't do this, we noticed that the patterns are still very persistent. Do you want to revisit this decision? Yeah. And we, we see that in, uh, in day to day life as well, right? You go out and you buy a, uh, I don't know, uh, with, with hobbyists, right? You, you buy a piece of gear that's way more than you need with the aspiration that you will eventually need it. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes that plays out, sometimes it doesn't, <laughs> right? I want to exactly. provision my website. Like, you know, when you make this, I see these uh, Medium articles on how to make a personal blog and they go into, you know, how to configure it on DynamoDB and whatever. And so most people's personal blogs could be served by a Raspberry Pi. Right. And they just don't have that much traffic but you want to think that your first problem will be scaling. Um, and it's kind of an aspirational thing to think about, but. Uh, 
I, Maybe. I, could, I, I know this experience far too well because I, I developed a, a little tool because I, I wanted to, I was doing a lot of mentoring. And so I developed an understanding that a few things influenced good mentoring engagements. And then I started to have like my own daily productivity and, and sort of health hacks. And I thought, what if I could add that to kind of this and can I sort of measure things out? So I created a journaling app and I did a bunch of things and I created this very, you know, sort of simplistic way of, of delivering it. And so the funny thing was it would, as I would post my journal, I would have a little slider to say like, I'm, this is what I feel today. You know, this is what's going on. This is what I got ahead. And then I'd have a little slider, basically a mood slider. How do I feel? And then what I would do is as I submitted it, it would go off and do natural language processing against it, do sentiment analysis, do, you know, word analysis. And it would say like, based on how I was saying I felt versus the words that I used to describe what was, what was going on, I could see the differential. And basically I created an app that would help me know if I was lying to myself. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you say, oh, I'm feeling great. But then your, your sentiment analysis on your text is more great is uh, maybe you're being sarcastic with yourself. Right. Or yeah. Like yeah. It's like, like, like the old classic thing. If you're, if you feel or you write, look, comma, as the start of anything, it's not going to be like, I just want to have a meaningful engagement with all due respect to like, no, no, you are not about to have a meaningful, like you are immediately coming on, putting someone on their heel when you lead with that. There's words that we use that can very much influence the outcome, but then started to the, 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 I started attacking the wrong problem. I thought I should probably build this in a way that I don't have to worry if it actually gets used in a larger scale. So what I did was I, you know, threw a scalable uh, RDS behind it. Uh, you know, I want to put a middle tier. Should I put a, a Redis cache layer for certain things? You know, should I you know, free up the front end, separate it out, try and do some stuff, do a load balancer. On, and so I created this fantastic, beautifully architected, scalable system. Or the alternative is I could run it in one container <laughs> on Fargate, <laughs> like, you know, or, or even better, I could literally run it in like the smallest thing, just run the tiny EC2 instance. And if it really ran into problems, I could just scale it up. Like I realized I was, I did this fantastic scaling architecture, but I'm like, yeah, no, there's me and 11 people using it. Let's just run it on one EC2 instance and back it up. Well, I always, when people say like, should I, should I use Kubernetes for this? I'm like, that answer will become apparent. Just, just <laughs> let, let that happen to you. Um, but don't, if you're thinking, oh, should I for, you know, maybe it's like, don't just, uh, don't just do, do that. Um, because it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down. Um, like, I think it's a neat, I mean, I really like it. I think it's a neat technology, a set of technologies, but unless if you're doing this as a career or as a, I guess as part of your job, but it's not central to your job, uh, it might be more time than it, it might take a lot of time and you might not see the benefits, right? You could put one container up and use Fargate to make sure it stays up. Right. That yeah. That, efficient. And, and people, so they, people got hung up on this thing of like going to putting a, a stateful application in a container was an anti-pattern. And so I said, well, I, I agree intellectually that the goal of Kubernetes was to create ephemeral con 
infrastructure to schedule compute for containers and put storage behind it so that it could operate. But it's, everything was meant to be ephemeral. So that, that was the pattern in which it was created. But is it wrong to run a stateful application on it? And, and wrong is such a, such a nuanced word, right? So it was, it was an anti-pattern to the design of the architecture. So then when a huge swath of the community said, what if we created this idea of stateful sets, right? And can we, can we create long running applications and then effectively train Kubernetes to behave differently for these things? And it created a bit of a rift, like, well, it's an anti-pattern. Like, well, if it's an anti-pattern used by a lot of people, sounds to me like it's a pattern not an anti-pattern. <laughs> That's a good point, right? It's to understand why are people, why are people doing this? Right. Uh, and is that, and, and actually Raul and I had this discussion the other day about uh, Amazon just released the C7G bare metal instance type. And so the question is, why would someone want to do that? Because typically you run one bare metal instances for, legacy applications but what legacy applications are running on graviton in the first place right. uh and is this his position on that <laughs> he compared it to um i don't know firearms or is this too much power you're giving people um that's that's his take on it was i think i, I i'm so curious right why would you want to do that is this is this a level of abstraction that's the, the level of abstraction that a standard EC2 give, instance gives you is this, um, that should be enough, right? And if you're going down this path, are you uh, are you asking the wrong question? Uh, but I don't know. That's, uh, that's, that's, I guess it's not a very clear example, but I, I know what you mean. No, I, I, in fact, I think it's actually, it's perfect because it is exactly the the questions we ask should lead to more questions. And we should never get to the answer because the answer is, has a state that's dependent on a lot of other point in time inputs. So we should continue to ask the question. And that's, and there's nothing wrong with choosing an answer that may seem like an anti-pattern, you know, like I said, like look at, you know, hey, look, I could save you. If you just lowered this thing down, you could save a bunch of money on it. It makes complete sense. But there's another, there's other inputs, other criteria that are personalized. But at the same time, those should not be permanent. They should be re-injected into a question again down the road. And I think this is really like a perfect wrap to what is, I mean, boy, I'd love to go three more hours and really dive into a bunch of stuff. Uh, oh, I'd love to talk more, but this, the, the fact that what we're doing is about being able to ask the right questions and merge what humans need and what technology can do, and then just keep revisiting it, keep exploring it, be excited about what we can do with it. I really like the way you're saying it. It's that constant pressure, right? Just like we need constant pressure in, in our own lives to get things that we want to do done, right? Like uh, if you want to do fitness, right? You call up a friend, okay, let's let's do this and bu bug me if I don't show up for my run twice in a row, right? You, you yeah. need that external pressure. We want to be the external, hey, we're always looking at cost. We are always looking at what's low-hanging fruit. 
what are best practices because best practices change over time. GPT two was or GP two was best practice until GP three came out. Right. Uh, so best practices change over time. New opportunities change. the The context changes, and maybe a decision that was right at one point is no longer right. Oh, we provisioned this this thing at this point, assuming it was going to take off, and then we went in another direction and kind of forgot about the infrastructure. Let's revisit that. Yeah. So that's I, I like that the idea of constant pressure because we all have a lot of other things to do besides stare at our infrastructure bills. And that is really where the we're not being told we're doing it wrong. We're told that we're being told that there's a better way. And if we are okay with it, then there are platforms and tools that can guide us to the better way and automate that process. And that's, that's really the, the win. I think we've luckily at this point separated the personal attack feeling that sometimes you're like, Hey, you know, this tool says you could, you could be better faster if you chose this. And you're like, look tool. <laughs> I'm I'm smart. I've been doing this for 25 years. Like you can't tell me what to do. You know, it and like now we've kind of understood that hey, I I'm pretty happy that Strava reminds me like hey, you haven't gone for a run in a while. <laughs> you know. I think that's one of those maturity things, right? Like I mean, I I was that pro oh yeah, I could do it better. I could do it better. I could always do it better myself. I mean that and I think that's probably a, a healthy thing to aspire to when you're a teenager and and in your youth, but eventually you think, okay, maybe I could, but it would be this enormous investment of time and the return on it would diminish and it would take away from a lot of other things that I have to do. And and then <laughs> you get a little bit older and said, yeah, I probably couldn't do it better. I could probably tell myself I could, but I probably couldn't. <laughs> and Yeah, there's a point, I think, probably in our, I don't know when it happens and it happens differently for everybody, but where you move from the need to be right or the desire to be right versus the desire to get to the right answer. And it's, it's a very nuanced thing, but there are points where even like, I always say my favorite, my favorite phrase I should put on a t-shirt is, you know, today's best practices are tomorrow's. What the hell were we thinking? Like, cause stuff is going to change. And, yeah. and it doesn't mean that we were wrong. Cause when you put it in the context of available capabilities at the time, it was not a wrong decision. Moving a stateful app into a container, knowing full well that that sucker could just go away because of some ephemeral thing that happened. Okay, so it made us, it forced us to re revisit, should we refactor this app to run it as microservices with a, an awareness of ephemeral infrastructure? Like, okay, cool. If not, then let's just build infrastructure that supports it. And then let's operate that in the most optimal way, which is where like, I can't, I should be doing the stuff that's not being able to be done by a machine and let the machines optimize stuff that I shouldn't care about. <laughs> well, I was thinking about, um, I saw this interview with Mr. Beast, right? And he said, um, he wants to be in front of the camera the whole time. And then op everything uh, else that's part of his business, he wants to kind of operation, make it more streamlined because yeah. that's the one thing he can't, um parallelize is himself and i like that as well right save the humans for the more nuanced decisions and we can be uh, another one we say is like a roomba right we, we, we can pick up the crumbs for you so you can focus on i don't know installing solar panels on your roof to save but in yeah. the meantime we can find the little things the leaky faucets the, the insulation yeah. that kind of thing. and i think this is the 
we're we're getting to the point where we're gaining a broad trust of certain things and and it's so good to see and you know it's again i kind of deeply know the the problem space that that cloud fix is in I've spent a decade you know being hyper aware of of that problem and the impact and also the difficulty sometimes in getting people to kind of accept that they are not always needing to be right about their architectural decisions and i think we've now gotten to the point and unfortunately you know financial pressures are driving that we have to make this decision faster and i say it unfortunately because i i would never wish the financial situation on the world but if you were you have to look at the positive outcome that we gain from it that you know as a as a ad astra per aspera right uh, to to the stars through difficulty so do we take this really difficult thing and then really assess and aggressively change our behaviors to make the most of it and then when we come out of it we won't even think differently of like yeah we're going to automate 90% of what we do now no i i completely agree i think that's a really um good perspective to have is you know yeah, ideally our economy is always booming, always, and we don't have to worry about costs, but we do, and that's that's a reality of life. So why don't we just put some processes in place that can not only help us now, but help us for next time, so that there's more room and more resources to do something more interesting. Exactly. Let humans do what humans do best, and let machines do what machines can help humans do better. Yes, I like that. That's. It's a magical world, Stephen. I could spend all day, and uh, I, I, I really, I would love to spend more, like even in the platform stuff, which what you and the team are doing on CloudFix. So obviously, we'll all have links to shoot people over. We had lots of good discussions. Your team's fantastic. You know, uh, I always go sort of it's team first, methodology second, and then you know, can we drive people to the the positive outcome, and like. I, I love all three stages of the way you're solving the problem. And I know this is a problem space that is not going away. So the more people we have in the industry making humans better and uh, empowering them to do more things because we can save them a couple of bucks along the way, even better. <laughs> well, I couldn't think of a better summary than that. And thanks again for having me on for the really fun conversations. I really appreciated all the different asides and I guess the, the, the way to explore different subtopics and the, and the humanity of the whole thing. And it was really fun. Thank you. I, I would love to continue the conversation. Who'd have thought that you'd be, we'd be talking about the ethics of, uh, of machine learning networking <laughs> networks, <laughs> but uh, Hey, this is, uh, I think this is the stuff that's great to explore. And like I said, you, your own personal background, good. I, I could go so much more. We, like I said, we will, we will chat again. I want to maybe do some panel stuff, although it's tough to do panels because I, when you have more than one person, like having, a, having three people is, an, is a good discussion. Beyond that gets really difficult to be, to go, unless you can go four hours. Like you have to spend a lot of time to really dive into stuff. I hate cutting things short where you're like, okay, well, we got to get to the next question. You're like, no, 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 we're going down this beautiful thread. Like, don't stop, don't stop. <laughs> well, I see a lot of, I mean, a lot of content out there is three, four or five hour long discussions. And I think, I, I, you're right, is that it takes some time to kind of hash things out and uh, to let the ideas emerge. And so it's really, I'm so 
glad that we have all this content. My frustration is that it's hard to find the time to consume these discussions. Yeah. Um, yeah. The amount of the amount of content that I want to consume is growing a lot faster than uh, the amount of time that I have. Yeah. And especially I've listened to most stuff at like 1.5 speed. I've gotten up to 1.7. So like my, that's the, where things start to break that I, I, I will lose moments of the conversation beyond 1.7 X. That's my, my personal way to consume. And then what's funny is you go and you listen to something at normal speed. And I realized that Sam Harris speaks extremely slowly. <laughs> I'm used to listening to him at like 1.7 X. And then you listen to him normally, you're like, wow, this is taking a while. <laughs> that, that's fat. So my, my wife can listen to audiobooks at 3X. I have, wow. I have your, no Your wife clue. is like ex machina. How I, she... I can't, I, I struggle at 1X. I am not a great audio person. Like I have to really focus. I have to really dial in um, 1.5x if I've heard it before, uh, but 3x I don't know how to do. It. That's incredible. That is, oh, I uh, that is fantastic. We we need to do a case study on your wife. That is uh, that is incredible. That uh, it, yeah, I know it's funny. And, and some people are visual learners. Some people are audio learners. I create video training content. I do not watch video training. Can't. Like I am ADHD, I've got very specific things that I go after. So I have to like, I love that you can search stuff now and in and, and like YouTube, it can just, it can find the key moment in the video that takes you right to what matters. Cause for me, my style of learning, what I'm going to solve a problem, I don't, I don't need the preamble. I was like, just get me right to the solution. Like that's kind of my approach to it. But ironically enough, I've learned how to create very easily consumable video content. So I know how to deliver it, but my brain does not consume it that way, which is kind of a dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes, actually that makes a lot of sense, right? It doesn't have to, just because you could teach one way doesn't mean you learn the same way. And it's probably right. a good layer of translation in there. That's why it's effective, right? Well, and sort of my, uh, sometimes it seems a little bit harsh, but said like the, the greatest machine learning tools today are likely going to be written by people that would might not even pass a Turing test. Like they're, they have to be so deep in like the ability to create, like to think like a machine. And that, not that that's a bad thing, but really like literally they are so fantastically enabled in one part of their capabilities that they, you, you don't want them to put them on stage in front of people because it's a terribly uncomfortable thing to do to them. And it's, and why would you expect them to behave that way in the same way that you wouldn't expect me to write a really deep neural net algorithm? Like I can understand how it works. I can work backwards into it, but you don't just say, here's a, here's a blank Jupyter notebook, uh, do something. <laughs> I, know, I love that observation. I was actually rewatching the iRobot movie the other day and the human protagonist played by Will Smith says to the robot protagonist, can you create a symphony? Can you create a masterful work of art? And the robot responds, can you? <laughs> and then, oh, and even thinking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, right? One of the themes throughout that is not only have the computers become more human, but the humans have become more computer-like. Right. And you see that in the relative um, emotionlessness of the characters. 
Yeah. And I think that was part of the showing that it's not just an evolution one way, right? We're also, right. And we adjust our phrasing, right? We're learning how to talk to chat GPT or how to, how to make search terms. We're adjusting our language too. That is, that is an amazing observation. This, that we are training it, but in order to be better at training it, we are actually retraining our own patterns of communication and interaction. This is, and that's the hidden, that, and oh boy, that's just, there's a slippery slope. There's three hours we could talk on that one right there. That is, uh, I, that is really, really cool to pull out of that. And it's funny, and it can be like a moment that you caught. I love that that, that opened that idea. Oh, that's a fantastic thread I would love to pull. We're going to do that. There I'll you go. That's that the next one. We're gonna... <laughs> did, the train mach... did the machine train me or did I train the machine? That's the next podcast. <laughs> that's, that's, that sounds great. Awesome. Well, All Stephen, right. uh, if people do want to reach you, what's the best way that they can do that? Well, I am on most social media, on Twitter, Mastodon. I'll give you the, the handles, uh, LinkedIn, email. I mean, I'm... Uh, Part of my role is to be accessible. So just uh, I'll give you all the links. Come and find me. And I, I love talking to people. Just, just send me a, a meeting request. And yeah, let's talk about, well, talk about CloudFix. We can talk about AI. We can talk about anything. That and, and I think that, again, to your credit and to the credit of the CloudFix team, that there's, a, there's an, an awesome trust between them to like, give you freedom to talk about what matters to people. And then by doing that, the engagement becomes much more meaningful. So that when a question does come about, you know, hey, so what does your team do? It is so much more like true and meaningful. And like, look, I could go to the sort of sales side of the world and say like, it's, it's reciprocal, whatever. Like I, there's sort of, you can look at the negative side of like what you believe you're doing, but in the end, like, they trust you to go out to the world and be a good person to guide technology and people. And then as a result, you also talk about the product and you, your ability to do it. It's one that I map myself to and, and I, I aspire to be that way. And uh, so kudos to them for recognizing how important it is as a, as a company. Well, that's, that's what I would say. They, they are really genuinely, um, they're really genuinely good people there. Like, I've, I've been so impressed my whole time. And it, it's such a, you know, inside internally, there's there's none of the politics and weirdness that I've seen in so many other organizations that they really, I mean, yeah, it's a business, but they are motivated by the long run. And also just the vision of what the cloud is and how powerful it can be, you know, and enable other businesses to, to not bleed money so they can continue to accomplish their goals. And, and not just businesses, but any user of the cloud, right? Yeah. The more productivity aggregate productivity that exists it all benefits us eventually in one way or another um and yeah it's a big shout out to to that team to to all of aria cloud fix it's a pretty phenomenal group of people um so i really appreciate being able to be part of the, be part of it that that is you know i i love i love the opportunity we've got with stuff like this and uh, the human impact is real and uh, at this point as i said financial impact is is significant which in the end is a human impact and and i love that that focus so all right steven all thank right. you very much and uh, it's been a real pleasure 
I, uh, I definitely look forward to doing this again. And also, thank you for all the fantastic ATEM tips and being able to explore our crazy setups. We, uh, I, I should I, point out to people, you've done a lot of great work on publishing like your configuration and like some of the, the stuff you've learned along the way. That, I think, is also some of the best things that if people just want to think about creating media and doing video work, you've got such great resources. Thank you for sharing that stuff. Thank you. And that, that's, that'll be another three hour uh, exactly. aside. <laughs> yeah. at it is, uh, uh, I, we could almost do that. Is uh, just, we need to like just book a whole day and just talk all day and just make sure that we try and stay on topic in three hour chunks. And then we'd be, we'd be all set. <laughs> that would be cool. Awesome. Thank you very much. See you.